0: So, this afternoon, Guy introduced the practice of mudita, practice of sympathetic joy, practice of happiness in the happiness of others. And I hope you had a good time. Did you have a good time with that? It's a great practice. And obviously, as we've said before, if we can develop this as a quality of heart and mind, our opportunities for happiness multiply exponentially. There's just so much more possibilities for that uplift. Many of us have a belief that somehow happiness is limited, you know, that it's like a pie, and there's only so much to go around, and the biggest slice there is elsewhere means a smaller slice for me. And this practice completely cuts through that false belief to see the potential for joy and happiness really everywhere and not in any way limited in the way we often think that it is. So we do this practice by choosing a happy person, a successful person, a person for whom things are basically going well, and we say a phrase something like, "May your happiness and good fortune continue, may they increase and never wane," and just repeat that over and over again as we reflect on this person and what's going well for them in their life, and the the. Um, process that happens and maybe you got a taste of that is just an upwelling of happiness of joy and perhaps that saw the possibility for cutting through that tendency to envy or limitation or or a, a contraction around this area of other people's happiness I know for me that was really the case when I did it and chose someone I really cared about and it was interesting to see those glimmers of hmm. How come she has so much or you know everything you know and I'd tick off all the things that were hmm and just to break through that over the days of practice and I can remember doing it here intensively over a number of days and getting so kind of light and giddy I almost felt like skipping which isn't very um, common in retreat centers so I restrain myself but it's that kind of energy very uplifting. And the wonderful thing about mudita is that there are so many opportunities for experiencing it, for contacting it, if we're open to them. They're everywhere. Um, I love animals, and I think one of the greatest sources for mudita are dogs. Mm. Unfortunately, I, we don't have one. We travel too much. I'd love to have one. But when we were here for a month in the autumn, Uh, One of the staff members who has a dog had to have some leg surgery, so he couldn't take his dog for a walk, so I offered to really be there and take this dog out as much as I could, and pretty much every day I took her for a walk, and there is nothing like the happiness of a dog that's about to be taken for a walk. (laughs) You know, it, you know it's, it, I didn't take it personally, I, I'm, not, I'm sure she wasn't loving me, but she loved going for a walk. And it would just lift my heart as I was going there, Maggie! And she'd come skeltering down the stairs and just be, you know, that bound, boundless energy of a pretty young energetic lab mix kind of dog and we'd take, take her out and when I could let her off the leash she'd tear around with that big grin. It was just great. It just made my day every time I did it. So as soon as we arrived this time, I said, we have to go for a walk and take Maggie for a walk. So we went over there to her cottage and she came bounding down the stairs. It was like a day hadn't passed. And I don't know if she remembered me, but she wanted to go for a walk. And so we took her out in the snow and down this trail. And she was just bounding through the snow and back. She's like on a rubber band, back and forth. And she'd come bounding back with this big grin with icicles dripping down. But she was so happy. You know, it just, It really made my day to be able to take Maggie for a walk. I hope to do it again before I leave. Another experience of this um, just the opportunities for Medita, uh, for me, was uh, after, just after that retreat in November, December, Guy and I took a month trip to India. And the first two weeks of that trip, we did a pilgrimage to the Buddhist holy sites, something we have both wanted to do for a long time, and finally our schedules allowed it to happen. And it was really powerful and meaningful to do this trip where we visited all of the sites that were associated with the Buddha's life, the places where he gave famous suttas, and to feel that connection, to feel both the the, the be in touch with the lineage, the, 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 the um, span of time that this practice and these teachings had been alive, to a little bit feel the loss because all of these places were mainly in ruins um, apart from the new temples that were being built. But what really touched me was seeing the other pilgrims, I, you know, not growing up as a Buddhist, um, not being a strong faith-based kind of person. Um, you know, these sites were meaningful for me, but when I saw the um, people from Buddhist countries, from Thailand or Sri Lanka, or even from um, Bengal, from India, and their devotion in visiting these sites and the reverence which with with which they would touch the the bricks or the stupa or place a candle, it just really moved me and, and lifted my heart up. I was happy at their happiness at being there, and I could feel how much it meant to them. And it really um, made my experience that much more deeper and profound. It was kind of, that's the thing about Mudita, it's like a contact high. You know, I would, I would get the faith from them, from their faith and reverence. So it was really a beautiful part of our experience there. But as we contemplate practicing mudita as it happens spontaneously, what's really important is that we become open to what makes other people happy and not necessarily view happiness just through the lens of what makes us happy. If we really want this expansion of happiness, we've got to have this more expansive view. I can remember uh, visiting my family and staying with my niece who's about 20 years old, maybe a little older now, this was a year or so ago. And just as I was getting ready to go to bed about 10.30, she was getting ready to go out and it was like, Night life didn't start till eleven or midnight, and I'd look at her and I'd go, that would just be torture. And I said, It's okay. May you be happy, you know, if that's what you want to do. If you want mudita to truly develop, we really have to open to this possibility of what happiness is for others. And there's a cartoon that I saw that kind of conveys this, and it's very appropriate to the weather that we're having if you've been to the pond. Gaston Pond down there. There's signs of this very experience happening. So it's a a snowy scene. It's kind of you can tell they're on a frozen lake. There's icicles dripping down, and these three figures dressed in bundled up in their winter clothes. The dad is sitting there on a block of something ice fishing, and this is what Dad says. And there's two little, two little kids. You can tell two shorter bundles. You can't really see anything. They're just these bundles looking at each other. And Dad says, it doesn't get any better than this, <laughs> said Dad. The kids who were hearing this for the first time were too stunned to reply. <laughs> Ice fishing. Actually, I have some friends who really enjoy that uh, guy. And I, uh, every few years, get invited to teach a retreat in Canada near Calgary and have met lots of wonderful people there. And one of the women who who helped support the retreat, very devoted, um, and her husband, who's not so connected, but a very nice man, told us that every weekend, they would, as soon as they finished work, head out in their RV from Calgary, out to somewhere to go fishing. And in in the summer, they would hike or bike 15, 20 miles to go fishing and then hike all that way out again just to fish. And in winter, they'd snowshoe or ski, and they'd go out there and ice fish. And she could tell, as I was hearing the story, my kind of, really? <laughs> and she said, I guess we like fish. <laughs> you know, I had to say, well, that's what makes them happy. Not for me, but mudita les, that's what makes them happy. So this practice of mudita is one of the four brahmaviharas, and it's part of this beautiful package of responses of the heart and mind to our experience. What's interesting about mudita is it's actually one of the ones we hear the least about. We often hear, of course, about metta, it's our foundation practice, compassion, I think Guy mentioned. For the Tibetans, they consider that the foundation practice, and equanimity is one of these beautiful qualities that develop through practice and wisdom. And So you hear a lot about those three, but Mudita perhaps not so much. Maybe today was the first time that you heard about it. It's actually said to be the most difficult Brahma Vihara. It's interesting. But it's because of this tendency to limitation and to envy, but it's really necessary. It sweetens the compassion. It allows us to stay open, to have this balancing sense of joy and appreciation. And it, it, it um, obviously is the lightness that is in our metta practice. It's often the metta is infused with a sense of mudita as we wish another well and really tune into that. So it supports the metta and it brings a warmth to the equanimity. So it really has an important part to play in this sequence of practices. Traditionally, mudita is considered to be joy in the joy of others. So it's usually translated as sympathetic or empathetic joy. But we consider that in this culture, developing joy in our own joy, really being able to rejoice in the beauty and and blessings of our life is incredibly important. And so to develop it in the sense of developing gratitude and appreciation is really essential. In in fact, this quality of gratitude is, is so important and such a beautiful quality to develop that we sometimes call it the fifth Brahma Vihara because when gratitude is developed, there really is this sense of contentment and equanimity and appreciation. Wonderful quality to have an expression of. But for us to be able to develop mudita, whether it's for ourselves or for others, we really need to know what happiness is and what causes suffering, what actually blocks our access to a sense of well-being, to a sense of joy and contentment. What blocks it in this moment, in this very moment, perhaps in this retreat? What blocks us in our lives? To really ask that question of ourselves, not just once or twice, but in an ongoing way. And to see that this this is just a reframing of one of the central teachings or, or um, practices of Buddhism, which is looking at the question of suffering. Now, we can sometimes get the idea, and I hear it misunderstood many times, especially in the media, on the radio or television, that Buddhism is all about suffering, that the first noble truth is actually life is suffering. Well, that's not what the Buddha said. He just said, there is suffering. This is a fact. To be in a human mind and body, there will be suffering of some form or another. But we can take from that, from either a misunderstanding or from the centrality of the Four Noble Truths that do say there is suffering and there's a cause of suffering. We can think that suffering is where it's at, you know, that to be really serious, basically we need to be suffering and working on our suffering. And if you're not suffering, you're basically in denial and happiness is kind of for wimps, you know, I'm a Buddhist, therefore I'm, you know, I'm working with my, I'm open to suffering, I'm looking at suffering. This is a misunderstanding of what the Buddha taught. He never taught about suffering without teaching about the end of suffering. And this concept or, or um, state of happiness, joy, or rapture is central to many of his teachings, to the development of meditation in the factors of enlightenment. It's one of the jhanic factors, the states of concentration. Um, In many of the lists, there will be this factor of joy or rapture or happiness as a central part. And he was actually known as the happy one. So as much as a a practice where we're willing to look at and be open to suffering. It's a practice of happiness. And I think that there's a wonderful way to actually reframe the Four Noble Truths that points to this directly. And this reframing is, there is happiness. Happiness is possible. There's a cause of happiness, which is non-grasping or contentment It's possible to abide in happiness, and there's a path to happiness. And it's the same path, the eightfold path. But the eightfold path is a path to happiness. In the ending of suffering, that is happiness. It's the highest happiness. So what is happiness? It can seem kind of a trite word. We use it so glibly. The Pali word is sukha, which I love. Sukha, it it sounds sweet, it is sweet. It's the opposite of dukkha, sukha. Steve Armstrong translates sukha as happy contentment of mind and body. And it is a sweet kind of feeling in its essential meditative nature. We experience sukha. And some of you have talked about this feeling. It can be a very beautiful, sublime quality the Dalai Lama wrote this great book. Now it's some time ago, The Art of Happiness. I've actually just seen the second edition has come out, it was so successful. Um, and in it he talks about happiness as being our birthright, as being something that's essential for us as human beings, central to a sense of well-being. And he talks about the necessity. Of working with whatever it is, and it's particularly difficult states of mind that obstruct our capacity to experience happiness. This is what the, you know, basically he's saying this is the purpose of a human life to do this. And lots of practical advice in that book. It's a wonderful book. I highly recommend it. It was actually co written or authored by um, a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist who talks about his own experience of opening to the Dalai Lama's teachings and he said that in his training as a psychotherapist the basic thrust of his training was to re- remove people's neuroses and as he said to make them normal they didn't you know a normal just meant not neurotic he, he said in my training there was never anything about actually the possibility of making people happy and it was such a revelation to see that that was a movement, a change, a growth that was possible. Of course, this, you know, many years ago now, and I think the whole therapeutic world has changed significantly with the influence of um, the positive psychology movement, and there's just a greater sense of the potential we have to grow in these beautiful states of happiness and joy and contentment and generosity. And this is the work that all of us are involved in, in one way or another for ourselves and in sharing our understanding with others. but of course, And of course, there have been these great studies that are being done. I know some of you are involved in them. And uh, the potential of mindfulness to actually change the structure of the brain to increase levels of well-being. Richie Davidson, who unfortunately couldn't be here, has done many of these great studies. And I know his early work was mainly with Tibetan practitioners. There was a group of 15 or so really experienced practitioners, and they did the functional MRIs um, on them and, uh, and had them practice compassion. And what they, they uh, saw when they studied them is the activity in some areas of the brain related to positive emotions increased to a magnitude that had never before been described in neuroscience. It's amazing. Mathieu Ricard, who was one of the first um, experimentees of, of Richie Davidson, because he, you know, he, he'd written some and, and uh, got interviewed, got tagged with a very, I think, unfortunate label, the happiest person in the world. He said, that that's a hard one to live down. What if you have an off day and people are expecting you to be the happy, happiest person in the world? But you know, he's been asked about this a lot. And he said, I, just, I, I tried to fight it. it. It just stuck. I couldn't get rid of it. So now I just accept it and use it to teach people that anyone could be the happiest person in the world if they're willing to you know use their mind in creative ways and do this training and this practice but i think it's important for each of us to know and define what happiness is i think we're all here because we've realized it's not getting a new car or a new computer or a new haircut or a new handbag or a new job or whatever it might be that you know, we were told would make us happy, that society often says is it, that we can see that those just bring a temporary gratification, that they're, that they're not it. This uh, really touched by um, another experience we had in India. The first part, as I said, was on a pilgrimage. For the second part of our trip, we actually spent the time in Mumbai and we're invited there by um, this wealthy, retired businessman who, with a small group of people, have um, created a project to start a meditation center in Mumbai. And this man, uh, who's retired now, and as I said, quite wealthy, realized that, he said, as he said to us, another private jet, another world-class meal, another trip around the world to exotic locations, said that wasn't going to do it for me. I knew that. I'd done all that wasn't going to do it for me. And so he started uh, researching and reading. And he got into Buddhism just through reading. And he read for years, read and read everything there is. He's listened to all our talks on Dharma seed and, and really got into it. And it's changed him profoundly. And from that change, from his greater degree of happiness and contentment and patience and equanimity, he's decided the best thing he can do is bring that to other people. So he's really made a a sincere commitment to developing this Dharma center in in Mumbai and offering these practices and teachings to people in India. And it was wonderful to be part of helping the Dharma flourish again in India. So it's quite an exciting project. But just to feel his sense of the thing that would bring him the most happiness was to offer other people this chance for the same kind of happiness and sense of well-being. As I've reflected on um, happiness and, and what happiness is, I've read some books about it. Um, you probably know happiness is in at the moment. If, if you Google happiness, you'll have endless hits on what, what's being talked about. One of the books I really like, um, they're by a couple of authors who live in the East Bay and, and often come to Spirit Rock, uh, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks. They wrote a book called The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People how we choose to be happy. And in this book, they went all over the country. And every place they went, they just asked people, who's the happiest person you know? Who's the happiest person you know? And once they got a list where a number of people were agreeing, then they'd go and interview these people. And they found it wasn't an accident. These people made deliberate choices to be happy. And they whittled them down to nine. There's the book. It's a great book. But they have a definition of happiness that I think is, is really um, a really good one because it's so broad and it speaks to us as meditators. They say our definition of happiness is a profound enduring feeling of contentment, capability, and centeredness. It is a rich sense of well-being that comes from knowing that you can deal productively and creatively with all life offers, both the good and the bad. It's knowing your internal self and responding to your real needs rather than the demands of others. And it's a deep sense of engagement, living in the moment and enjoying life's bounty. It's a great definition of what true happiness is. I like it. It's engaged. It's responsive. It talks about well-being living in the moment. These are all things that are meaningful for us as meditators. The reason that happiness is in at the moment is there's a huge sense of discontent in this society. We've been given so many messages about what should make us happy, and many of us have tried all of them, whether it's success or possessions or family or relationship. And it doesn't mean that there can't be some degree of happiness in those things, but so many have seen that it's still not it it's not that ending of that sense of lack of of, of inadequacy or whatever and you have probably all heard of those studies uh, about happiness set points that talk about you know if someone has something really good happen to them and i love that their idea of really good is winning the lottery you know for most of we know, that would actually be and it has been for a lot of people actually really difficult but that's their example winning the lottery or something really bad happening, some serious illness, or you know, people losing some physical capacity, uh, being paralyzed in some way, that after some time, six months, a year, whatever, these people come back to pretty much the same level of happiness that they had before this event that moved them one way or the other, and they called this the happiness set point. I think further research has shown that even though there is that happiness set point, if nothing else really changes. But if we actually apply ourselves, if we get curious about this, it's hugely possible to change what our happiness set point is and to totally increase the amount of joy and well-being we have in our lives. One of the great examples of this that I know of is our good friend James Barras, teacher at Spirit Rock has for a number of years now, been leading this great course called Awakening Joy. And it's a six or nine month class. They meet monthly and every class is about developing this capacity for joy. And there's homework and exercises and practices. And it was so successful his last round, he was going to do one class in Berkeley, he had to do two. And there are like 250 people in each class. And he has an online version. It's videotaped and streamed. And there are 2,500 people doing it all around the world, so just 3,000 in this last round. He's just written a book, which has just come out. I really recommend it, called Awakening Joy. And this is a quote from one of the participants in the class. This course changed my life. I understand now that I have a lot more to do with experiencing joy than I thought. To be joyful had always seemed like luck or some sort of accident even, and I felt like I was a victim of life's circumstances. I now see that I have more control over how often I experience joy. I can choose to be happy, and I can choose to be unhappy, even miserable. Joy seems to occur more often as a result of this realization. Just through changing how they related to their experience and what they chose to notice, what they chose to notice, their experience hadn't changed. Their out- outer circumstances hadn't changed. Now, like each of the Brahmaviharas, Mudita has a near and far enemy. I probably mentioned them today. The near enemy is exuberance and the far enemy is envy or jealousy. Now this near enemy is is kind of interesting. Near enemies, as as we've said, are um, qualities of mind or heart that look very much like the Brahma Vihara. They kind of masquerade as it. We can almost be fooled by it, but they're somewhat of a distortion. So when Mudita gets really amped up, that exuberance, that giddiness that I spoke about can happen. And you can notice it because there's usually a proliferation of thought around it. Instead of just staying with the phrases, staying with the practice, or even, if you're not formally practicing, just being with the experience. There's all sorts of, wouldn't it be great if thoughts? Or if only there was more of this. Or what can I do to hold on to this kind of thoughts? And just to recognize that when it happens, use that energy to. Fuel a sense of well being, but see if you can ground it back in the body. See if you can ground it back in the present moment. There's a great Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that I think exemplifies this. Calvin and Hobbes, the great uh, 20th century philosophers. Um, Calvin and Hobbes in the little red wagon hurtling through the landscape. And this is Calvin, a great line. My life could be better than it is. I'm happy, but it's not like I'm ecstatic. Life is like topography, Hobbes. There are summits of happiness and success, and they're going over the terrain as they're saying this, flat stretches of boring routine, and valleys of frustration and failure. But I'm dedicating myself to experiencing only peaks. I want my life to be one never-ending ascension. Every minute of every day should bring me greater joy than the previous minute. I should always be saying my life is better than I ever imagined I would it would be and it's only going to improve and of course at this point they're hurtling off the cliff <laughs> down to certain uh, doom at the bottom that's exuberance it needs to be in balance like everything so keep it in the moment keep it body based the far enemy of mudita is that sense of limitation of envy or jealousy where we look at someone else or something else and say, "Why don't I have that? Why should why should they have that?" And if they have it, it means I don't. I don't have it. I don't have enough. I don't have the same, whatever it is. It can be really hard to acknowledge we have that in ourselves. It's. it's I think Guy was saying he he could he could uh, be okay with being angry, but not being cruel. Not being cruel. It's kind. I felt the same when I saw those twinges of envy coming up. It felt kind of yucky, and I, I, I didn't want to admit it to myself even. But being willing to admit it, to see it and acknowledge it, is part of the process of letting it go. It's part of the opening and the transcending of it. So we recognize that those thoughts are there, that that, that conditioning is there, because that's all it is. It's just conditioned patterns that we've learned somehow, that there's not enough to go around. And not judge it. Just accept that it's there as a patterning and to be willing to feel what happens when those kinds of thoughts come up, how it separates us, how it limits us, how it makes us feel contracted. It's painful and that's the beginning of letting it go and to challenge the assumptions that envy or jealousy tries to convince us of, that I need that, that they shouldn't have it, why not me and just see that we we actually have everything we need in this moment and for others to have does not take away from our capacity for happiness. But this sense of deficiency, of not, not enough is actually, can actually be one of the biggest obstacles to our happiness And not so much in a sense of what we have or don't have, but more a sense of deficiency of self, a sense of inadequacy, a sense of not being good enough, not being okay at some basic level. And I see this so often in the people I talk to on retreat. And it was such a strong conditioned pattern of mine, this sense of self-criticism self-judgment, lack of self-acceptance. And I've actually seen it as one of the biggest sources of suffering for many people and one of the biggest obstacles to spiritual growth, to meditative growth. If we believe those messages that we're not good enough, we're not okay. it's a huge barrier to any sense of well-being and growth in our practice and our understanding. Metta is actually one of the most powerful ways we can work with this sense of deficiency. For me, it was a huge shift in my relationship to myself because we begin with meta for self. It's such a great place to begin. It's such wisdom in that. Traditionally, though, it was considered the easiest place to start. It's like, oh, that's a no-brainer. You know, care for yourself? Of course you will. Here in the West or in many places on the planet, not so Simple, not so obvious, and perhaps you've experienced that. We've actually learned to be self critical. We've learned, we've taken this message in from our peers, from our family, from the culture, that there's something wrong with us, that there's some way in which we're inadequate. We've internalized this message that we're not good enough in any area, many areas of our life. Could be about our looks, our body our vitality, our intellect, our athletic ability, our achievements, our possessions, our work, our fa- whatever it is, this sense of um, comparing and judging, of, of feeling that sense of inadequacy can enter into it. And sometimes we can almost feel that we should be critical of ourselves, that this is actually the appropriate stance to have about ourselves. And if we're not judgmental in some way or another, again, we're kind of missing the boat when, when where there's not enough uh, acuity there about the reality of things. Uh, to the extent, and I've seen this in people internalizing the message that they're bad, really unworthy, this is so painful and such a, a common experience. So in the process of meditation, being willing to see these conditioned Thought patterns, to see this um, attitude that we have towards ourselves, to really open to it, to see the force it plays in our life, in our minds, in our hearts, is the beginning of letting it go. But it's painful. It's painful to start to see clearly these messages and feel the impact they've had on us over our lives, because this was an important area for me in a lot of suffering. For me i did you know a reading in it and actually did a workshop with this man byron brown who's written a book i, I found very helpful called soul without shame he's a student of a h almas at the diamond heart diamond approach in in uh, the bay area and this book talks about um, this critical voice as being a judge and he had a lot of helpful information both in the workshop and the, the book talking about how this this voice of the judge came into being. And he says, as children, we had to learn social norms to get along and develop a conscience. And as this procedure became internalized, it became overactive and overcritical. And it becomes this voice of the judge, this critic of everything we experience. As we mature we come to see that this voice is actually not so helpful, it really limits us, it controls us, because the basic message of the judge is, I'm not good enough, people won't like me if they knew what I was really like, and the sort of sucker punch is, and I'll never be able to change, this is the way I am, I'm kind of stuck in this way of relating to myself. But it's important to understand the judge, this judging voice and how it came into being so that we can begin to work with it skillfully. And again, this is Byron Brown speaking about this judging voice and how it came into being. It's a conscience that helps you to distinguish right from wrong. It's a motivator to push and persuade you to act in your life. It is a guard that stops inappropriate feelings and behavior. It is a counselor for support in making decisions. It's a guide that provides direction as you make your way. It is an authority figure offering offering recognition and approval. It is a yardstick for measuring your progress. And last, it is a mirror that reflects back to you who you think you are. Each person needs help in these ways. What you were not taught while growing up is how to discover the true source of these functions in your own inner being. Your true nature has the potential to meet all these needs, but only if the qualities necessary to do so are recognized as existing in you. When you were a young child, it was important that parents or responsible adults were there to fulfill these roles. As you grew up and became responsible for yourself, you had to find ways to meet these needs on your own. Unfortunately, you got little, if any, support in recognizing and developing your own inherent capacities. You had little choice but to internalize your parental role models in the form of the judge. You may not be happy with the way it performs these important functions, but you are familiar with the judging voice and you know it is dependable and will always be there for you. Lest we forget, the judge is not bad or evil or even useless. None of us would have survived into adulthood without a judge. Our society would not be as civilized as it is without the judge's constant presence. Each of us will need a judge until we find a source of effortless functioning, direct knowing, and objective conscience inside ourselves. In the meantime, the judge is all most people have to get the job done. However, it is mechanical, restrictive, inefficient, and insensitive. It does a poor job of supporting the life of the spirit. So this is where many of us find ourselves still having the strong voice of the judge as this internal constant critic, yet knowing how painful and limiting that voice is. Part of why we tended to um, give it energy is because, as Byron Brown said, it did serve us in some way. And one of the questions he had us ask in this workshop was, what's right about judging? We did it in a dyad where you ask a repeating question. And it's such a great, it was a great question for me because I could see why I held on to the judge. There were a lot of reasons why that voice was still um, part of, strongly part of my conditioning. So the, you know, just as you said, the judge, the judging voice um, is, is the voice of discerning right from wrong. We feel it keeps us out of trouble. It's this voice of wisdom. It it helps us feel that we're safe or in control and staying out of trouble. So there are reasons why we continue to listen, why we judge others negatively. Again, to look at what what are the benefits of that. You know, we get a sense of superiority. I'm not like that. Look at what they're doing. I would never do that. As we all know, you know, it it can... um, defend us from having to look at places where we actually feel inadequate as we judge others negatively. So just that sense of separation. A really interesting one is to look at why we judge others as superior to ourselves. Why we judge ourselves to be inferior. And to see how often there's a sense of safety in feeling diminished. That then I don't have to manifest in the world. I don't have to show up. I don't have to put my voice out there in the room because I'm not worthy, or I wouldn't be understood, or I'm not smart enough, or whatever it might be, or we'd feel exposed. So believing that helps to support that sense of, it's okay to hide. And judging others negatively can support those feelings of envy or jealousy that I spoke of as the opposite, the far enemy of mudita. A uh, guy and I taught a retreat in in Perth where there was uh, this um, yogi who was always late to everything. He was late to the sittings, he was late to his yogi job, he was late to his interviews. And he came in a little late to one interview with this realization where he'd just broken through something. He said, I'm always late because then people yell at me and it reinforces my conviction that I'm unworthy. And even though it's painful, to have that sense of unworthiness reinforced was a greater source of satisfaction in some way than, than the pain of, of being yelled at, being having other people be angry at him. So we just do that to, to ourselves again and again and again. One of the things that happens is as as we've become so used to this judging voice that we don't see it as just conditioned mind patterns. It's so close, so, so integral to our sense of self that we can't separate from it. And we actually think what this voice is saying to us are observations, the truth, the way things are, not judgments. It's really important, and meditation is one of the helpful tools for learning to distinguish between, to to really see our thoughts for what they are, mainly conditioned patterns repeating themselves with every now and then a new thought coming through, to really see that what we're doing is perceiving the world through this filter of whatever state of mind we're in, whether it's happiness or perhaps a sense of unworthiness or negativity. To really see a thought is just a thought and that we don't have to believe it, whatever it's telling us. For many people, this is a radical breakthrough in their practice and in their lives. So we can use our metta practice to work with this inner critic because it really addresses this directly as we begin this process of wishing ourselves well may I be happy, may I be at peace and at ease, may I have a sense of contentment in my life, and start to strengthen and really honor and, and believe, trust in, have faith in that wish, that aspiration for ourselves, and then see the negativity, the judging voice so clearly, and kind of, you start to see, which one do I want to believe? Which one is actually in my own best interest? This negative, nagging voice, or this wish to be happy, healthy, and whole. And the more we start to believe and have confidence in and really trust ourselves, the less we want to believe that voice that says, we're not okay, we're we're deficient, we're not whatever it is we're judging ourselves to be. To really honor this valid human wish aspiration, as the Dalai Lama says, our birthright to be happy I can remember when on a retreat I first heard someone suggest using this phrase, may I love and accept myself just as I am, it was kind of like, what? You've got to be kidding, you know. Maybe after the 10-point improvement program, or maybe after when I'm a better person, or maybe in five years, yes, but now as I am, you know, no way, you've got to be kidding. And to just start to say that phrase, even though I knew I didn't mean it. I totally didn't believe it, but I just committed myself to saying it. And it's amazing, even though at first I just totally didn't believe it. And even now I can say it and still go, right. But it had an effect, just that power of that aspiration, love and accept myself just as I am. It's, It's really quite amazing. When I first uh, did a meta retreat, a long meta retreat, six weeks here at IMS, I'd resisted doing this practice for a long time. Kind of, oh, that's such hokey meta, loving everyone, schmaltzy. You know, I thought it'd be like living in a hallmark card hour after hour. Just seemed t- totally something I would not want to do. But as I sat with that and talked to other people about it, you know, I just saw so clearly it was fear. That I couldn't do it. That that I was, you know, not really a loving or a lovable person. So I knew that it's something I had to do. So I signed up and I came for six weeks, that long retreat in the fall. Started the practice and it basically began okay. I would go to my teacher and say, well, you know, I'm feeling good. It's kind of warm and kind and a little friendly, um, and the concentration was deepening. And it felt good. But about two weeks in, you know, I'd go in again and say, well, just Kind of feels okay. It feels nice. Nothing special. And I, at this point, I was, you know, starting to worry and judge that, you know, I wasn't doing it right, or I really, I my fears were correct that I couldn't do it. And I went into what, this one interview where I reported my experience, and my teacher just, you know, I said maybe I should try doing this, and he said, yeah, maybe you should try doing that. Maybe that'll work. And uh, you know, just very simply, and I, I walked out of that interview. And uh, as we do, replaying the interview and creating greater and greater inflections in his voice as he said that. And as I got down to my walking path, I was hearing me saying, yeah, why don't you try that, for God's sake? Maybe, maybe that will work for you. And I just became convinced that I was a failure, that I was, you know, I was unlovable, I was un- Could never love, you know. Why did I ever think I could do meta? And here I am, two weeks into a six week retreat. I've sublet my house, I don't have a car. Where can I go? You know, I actually had the thought can I fake this for four weeks? You know, can I just pretend that it's kind of working? And, you know, I just saw this whole spinning out of a cycle of self negation and, and, you know, how unworthy I was and how unlovable and how hopeless out of this one line that my teacher said and luckily I had this moment of grace and you know again I wasn't thinking the metta practice was working but it probably was where I just had this thought look you could go down that trail what it felt like was that those I was at the edge of an abyss and I could take that step that just slunk me down into the bottom of that abyss it was very familiar where I was hopeless and everything was hopeless and I would always be like this. But the thought came, you could go down there and you'd stay there. And you could stay there for a few hours or a few days or a few weeks, the rest of the retreat. But at some point, something would shift and you would come out of that state. What would it take to step across the abyss and not go down into it? And the next thought came, what it would take would be, I'd have to accept myself. I'd have to accept that this is what my practice looked like. This was the amount of metta that I could feel. And if I don't do that, I'm gonna suffer. And this retreat is gonna be a hell realm instead of a metta field. So I did that. I just took a big breath and took the next step and said, may I be happy. And I can't say that immediately I was filled with love and light or that my heart opened, but I had powerful experiences during that retreat that were life-changing for me from that willingness to just accept myself, just as I was, and say, this is my practice. This is the purification that can happen with metta as we open up to whatever it is, a sense of deficiency, a sense of hurt, of remorse or regret, things we've done wrong, hurts that have been done to us, our willingness to open to these experiences, accept them fully, not deny them, they happened, but be willing to love those two, include those two as part of what makes us who we are today, yet not let them limit our capacity to be present, to love, and to grow. This is how the practice really works. It's not some magic mantra that we're saying, it's our willingness to do this work of purification, and to let this process actually happen as painful as it can be. So the basic um, intention in practice is to keep saying the phrases, if you can, when this when memories come up, when these difficulties come up. But if you can't, if, the, if whatever's up is so strong, then to just really open to that experience. Use your mindfulness practice, but basically to accept, to accept this as the truth of the moment, the, the, the uh, authenticity of the moment, to offer forgiveness to yourself and to others and to bring the quality of metta into that experience itself. And I keep telling people, I don't know how many times we need to say it, but I'll keep saying it, you cannot spend too much time sending metta to yourself. It's such a healing thing to do. It's such a profound gift to give yourself and therefore to give your world, to give your life. Um, because as we grow and deepen in that sense of love and acceptance, it's inevitable that we will offer that to other people, and it will be the foundation for a way of being in the world. It's really profound. So please to allow this process to keep cooking by sending as much matter as you can to yourself. So where, uh, this judging voice can, can um, be directed negatively towards ourselves. Of course, we judge others, and that can be uh, also painful. And on retreat, people sometimes come in very worried and say, am I always like this? Do I usually have this many judging thoughts? Is, is this practice increasing them? Sometimes, actually, I think it, it might do because we take away all of the distractions, and what we see is what we have difficulty with. You know, Because we can't go and do what it is we normally do to keep ourselves busy. But often I think it's just revealing a, a tendency that's there in us. And again, our willingness to open to that, to see the pain of that, the separation that comes, and really begin to understand the conditioning that causes us to do this. It's As I said earlier, it's, it's come about as kind of a protection that we've developed, a way of separating ourselves. And in this practice, in its movement towards connection, we realize that's not how we want to live our lives. We want to grow in greater and greater connection. So we use the metta, we use this beautiful practice of the neutral person that we started with today to see how every person wants to be happy, every being wants to be happy and not to suffer. And we learn how to look for what connects us rather than what separates us. That's the magic that the Dalai Lama weaves. Every time he meets someone, people just get blown away by his presence. And so people say, what is it you do? And he says, I don't do anything. I just look for what connects us. I acknowledge that we're both human beings and we want to be happy. And then I, I respond to that person from that place. So it's really important as we work with this judging voice to be very tender about it and to bring humor in if you can. Jack Kornfield says things like, Count, start counting the judgments. By the time you get to 500, you'll realize you know, how automatic they are, how, how, how uh, conditioned they are, and not take them quite so personally. To talk back to the judge. Give it a name. Give it a voice. You know, Miss, Mrs. Smith, your second grade teacher, thanks. Your opinion, but I'm okay on my own, you know. I don't need you right now, I don't need you anymore. We need to see what's feeding the judging, you know, and really be in touch with whatever feelings of deficiency or aversion or fear are there. Sometimes none of those things work. I, again, I was here on retreat and, and just. The judging was so strong, and unfortunately, what I know was unfortunate. was the same ten judging thoughts. And my mind had gotten really quiet, except for these same ten judging thoughts that I have every time I went into the dining room or or walked outside and saw something or saw a certain person. This thought would come, and I got so I felt it in my body. I felt the fear, the contraction, the separation. Boom! There they were. I saw how impersonal, how just automatic they were. So, I came up with this practice that I'll offer for you, and you can have a variation of it or see if it's helpful. I made a vow that every time I noticed a judging thought, I would add on the line, and chipmunks are cute. (laughs) Because they are, you know, I love animals, I love the chipmunks, and I just thought if I could, you know, you have the judging thought and you think of a chipmunk, it's like, what do you do? You smile. And it just completely changed how I related to those judging thoughts. So, whatever works, Try it. That's my recommendation. Whatever gets you there. But to really see the power of this practice, to bring this sense of acceptance, I really see metta as a big yes, a big yes to ourselves, to our experience, to life. Metta as acceptance. And in some ways, the practice is so simple, yet can be so profound, so deep, and so powerful. And it can change the way we experience ourselves, the way we experience the world, and the way we live our lives. So I'm really happy and have Mudita that I'm able to share this retreat, this journey with you. And I want to just finish with some quotes. They're actually quotes, little uh, uh Answers from Hawaiian kids, aged about six, who are asked the question, what does aloha mean to you? And aloha is this beautiful Hawaiian word that basically means love. But it it, it means many things, and it's got this beautiful combination of metta and mudita. So this is what they said. One day, if you swallow a rainbow, then you let some drip out of your mouth when you smile. That's what aloha is. Aloha is like when a puppy licks your face, only it's not so sticky. (laughs) You could substitute meta for all of these. Aloha is when you have to say goodbye, but you want to leave a piece of you behind because now you have to go home. Aloha means I remember you even though I haven't met you before. It should be a flavor of ice cream because it's that good. And aloha is what dolphins whisper to each other and to you when they pass under you and under the ocean. So at the end of the talks, we just like to sit in silence just to let the words settle before we move. You don't need to change your posture. Just sit comfortably. Just let the words settle before we go into the next walking. Thank you for listening.